This is The Guardian. Today, casual drug use has never exactly been safe, but a new opioid flooding the United States is making it more dangerous than ever. Almost six years ago, when the legendary musician Prince died of an overdose, you might not have noticed the name of the drug found in his system, fentanyl. Prince thought he was taking Vicodin. A legendary voice silenced by one of the strongest opiate drugs in the world, fentanyl, 50 times more potent than heroin. In 2018, the rapper Mac Miller believed he was taking the painkiller oxycodone. The pills were counterfeit. Among the cocktail of drugs that killed him was fentanyl. The feds don't know if Miller knew he was getting fentanyl-laced pills instead of what the feds alleged the rapper agreed to buy, oxycodone, cocaine and Xanax. Last September, when Michael K. Williams, the actor most famous for his role as Omar in The Wire, died of an overdose. The drug responsible was... The U.S. attorney released pictures of the actor receiving fentanyl-laced heroin. Unlike heroin or cocaine, fentanyl is completely synthetic. It's produced in a lab, much stronger than similar drugs, far more addictive and much more dangerous. And as Perla Mendoza, a California woman, found out, not just killing the rich and famous. My son asked a supposed friend if he knew anyone who had Xanax, and that friend gave him a Snapchat link to someone he knew. My son went on to Snapchat and reached out to that person and asked him, hey, do you have Xanax? In the end, this young man delivered what my son believed to be a legitimate pain pill. And it wasn't. It was 100% fentanyl. And one pill killed my son. He was deceived. He didn't ask for fentanyl. Nowhere on his message did he say, can you give me fentanyl? He didn't want to die, but he did want relief. You know, this fentanyl, it's all over the place. And it's just spreading like wildfire. You've probably heard of America's opioid epidemic. What you may not know is, it's never been more deadly. And that's largely down to one new drug. From The Guardian, I'm Michael Safi. Today in Focus, how fentanyl flooded the United States and sent opioid deaths soaring. Erin McCormick, you're a Guardian US reporter based in California. Can you tell me about what you remember of the arrival of the drug fentanyl in your state? Well, we hadn't heard of it at all until the summer of 2021. 
And suddenly we started hearing of all these drug overdoses and all these deaths. Apparently, fentanyl had been circulating a lot on the East Coast. And then the police chief of San Francisco announced that they had seized seven kilos of powder-filled baggies. New tonight at 8 o'clock. Take a look at this. San Francisco police showing off this bust of illegal guns, drugs, and cash that were headed to the streets of the Tenderloin. Officers say they recovered more than 30 pounds of drugs, including more than 16 pounds of fentanyl alone. Which he said was enough lethal overdoses to wipe out the city of San Francisco's population four times over. There's been a lot of coverage of the opioid crisis over the past few years, but I think what's shocking to me is that it actually seems to be becoming far worse. What is the scale of the crisis now? When it comes to overdose deaths, what kind of numbers are we talking about? In five years, it has been a doubling. And during the first year of the pandemic, we discovered that 100,000 people had died of overdose deaths. Today, we learned that more than 100,000 Americans died of drug overdoses in the last year. That is the highest overdose death toll ever recorded in a 12-month period. Drug overdoses now claim more lives than car accidents and gun violence in America combined. In that one year, the one first year of the pandemic, it was a 30% increase. God, that is just appalling numbers. I mean, how many of those deaths are connected to this drug, fentanyl? About three in four overdose deaths are now associated with opioids. And by now, nearly 90% of those deaths are fentanyl or other synthetic drugs made from raw chemicals rather than agricultural methods like they used to have to grow poppies like heroin. Now it's all mixed up in a laboratory. According to statistics that we calculated, a young person dies in California of fentanyl now every 12 hours. And that's a thousand percent increase in the last five years. That's really staggering. What exactly is fentanyl? What makes it so dangerous? It was originally invented as a powerful anesthetic medical drug, which could help with things like very bad cases of cancer or to put people to sleep during surgery. Similar to other opioids like morphine and heroin, fentanyl sedates the user by reacting with receptors in the brain to release dopamine. Fentanyl is as much as 100 times more potent than heroin. And the amount of powder that would fit under your small fingernail could be enough to kill you. One kilo of pure fentanyl, I'm told, you could make like $20 million. Are people actually going to drug dealers and saying, hey, can I get some fentanyl? Like, how do they actually end up getting it? Well, it started out being added to the heroin supply. And then it was also found to be added to supplies of all kinds of other drugs like cocaine and methamphetamines. First, it came from China, and sometimes it was shipped through the mail directly into the United States and sold on the streets here. But then there was a crackdown in China on the manufacture of fentanyl, and chemists in Mexico originally affiliated with drug cartels, learned how to make it. After that, it became kind of a free-for-all where it's no longer even organized cartels manufacturing this, but there are chemists, maybe freelance on their own or working with other organizations 
that have huge laboratories and they're almost factory style laboratories producing this in Latin America, Mexico, and then smuggling it up into the U.S. We've been hearing about the opioid crisis now pretty consistently for about five or six years. And yet you tell me that in that same period, the deaths from opioids, they've actually doubled. I know the government has tried to crack down on opioid abuse in recent years, but it sounds like they're not succeeding. Why is that? Well, starting in about 2000, we saw an explosion of opioid addiction that came out of prescriptions being written by pain doctors and clinic doctors. We doctors were wrong in thinking that opioids can't be used long term. They can be and they should be. And it really started in the rural populations of the East Coast, but it spread around the country. And it's believed that it was pushed by pharmaceutical companies. And suddenly you had all these people who were addicted. Starting in about 2015, I believe, the U.S. really cracked down on the number of prescriptions being written. And suddenly those people had to turn, if they were addicted, to street drugs. So Erin, is the reason the opioid crisis has gotten so much worse in the past few years because of these new super potent synthetic drugs or are there other factors at play here? Well, there are a lot of factors at play. One of the concerns is that people were socially isolated during the pandemic and they're locked down in their houses and may have turned to drug use for psychological reasons. People were out of work, they were lonely, maybe feeling desperate, but also people who were using drugs may not have been able to get the help they needed. For one thing, a lot of the treatment programs shut down, but also one of the ways you stay safe while using opioids is by having someone else there with you who can rescue you if you start to overdose. It's a really tragic image, you know, people doing drugs alone in their homes and dying because there's no one around to notice that they're taking too much or that they've OD'd. I wonder, in this newer wave of the crisis, this one that's partly driven by the pandemic, who is dying? Do we know much about who they are? Really, we have all kinds of people that are dying. We've had long-time drug addicts who were used to using heroin and having a certain level of tolerance, and suddenly they're hit with this incredibly potent drug. And the death rates for Blacks surged by 49% in 2020. And for Indigenous Americans, they grew by 43%. And what that did is that pushed the death rates for those two groups higher than those of whites, which had not happened in the last 20 years. Erin, those are incredible increases. When it comes to African-Americans and Indigenous Americans, how do people understand what's going on there? There are a number of things that make it more dangerous for the Indigenous and the Black populations. One of the issues they find is that when people have just gotten out of jail, they are more likely to overdose because their tolerances are low. 
But in the U.S., with our longstanding war on drugs, we have tended to put Blacks and Indigenous Americans in jail at much, much higher rates than whites. And so that's one of the reasons that they may be hit by this. Another reason is they're not getting the treatment and other forms of help. There's a drug called naloxone that can be used to instantly reverse an overdose if you catch it right away. And if you sniff some of this up someone's nose, someone who's nearly dead can suddenly wake up and be fine. And the supplies for that kind of rescue may not be getting out to these populations as much as they're distributed to white populations. I mean, I think if a lot of us were to think of the opioid crisis, we might think of those rural white communities that were often facing serious economic hardship. But from what you're saying, it seems like that narrative of the opioid crisis just isn't true anymore. A lot of times, deaths among whites have been described as deaths of despair caused by jobs moving overseas and people not feeling connected to society anymore. Tucked into the Appalachian Valleys of South Central West Virginia, they've sent generation after generation deep into the coal mines and to cut timber. But as a lot of those jobs disappeared, folks moved away. A lot of people struggled to find work and painkillers, heroin, meth took hold. But now we're starting to look at how that kind of despair has also been affecting communities of color in the U.S. for perhaps many decades longer. African-Americans started to experience job loss many decades before white Americans did due to closing of manufacturing in the U.S. and indigenous Americans had a sense of despair that goes all the way back to their land and their culture being taken away from them when Europeans arrived and basically took over the land. Erin, another group that you mentioned who were badly affected were teenagers. What's been happening with them? What are the numbers saying? Well, the largest group of deaths has been among middle-aged people. But my analysis of the age groups and how they've seen their rates grow shows that teenagers saw the fastest rates of deaths. So among youth under age 24, we found that accidental drug deaths increased by 50% in a single year. And in 2020, more than 7,000 young people died of drug overdoses. God, that is, I mean, it's just awful. What does it look like on the ground? Is there a particular way young people are getting mixed up with fentanyl? One of the things we're finding is that teenagers are getting a hold of this accidentally. And one of the ways that that's happening is through these counterfeit pills that drug traffickers are making. And they're pressing these pills to look exactly like prescription pills for oxycodone or Xanax or even Adderall, which is used to help people with attention deficit disorder. And they're marketing them on the streets a lot of times through social media. 
And teenagers may be experimenting. They may say, oh, I'd like to try one of these pills and who could be killed by one single pharmaceutical pill? But Drug Enforcement Administration in the U.S. has tested pills that it has apprehended and found that two out of five pills are deadly and contain deadly amounts of fentanyl. My son, Daniel, we were very close. He was 20 years old when he passed away from fentanyl poisoning. He was the type of guy that would stop and say, Mom, we need to help that person. Their car broke down. Or, hey, Mom, let me get off the car and go help that old lady. He would write music and he would sing and he loved rapping. He was a very special boy and son. I was a single mom, so I was very proud of the way he he turned out. Yeah, I can hear it in your voice, Perla. I mean, I can hear that pride. Thank you. I'm trying to hold back my tears. <sighs> I appreciate this is really hard to talk about, and I really appreciate you sharing your story with us. I know Daniel was working to overcome his anxiety and depression. Can you tell me a little bit about that? He did, and it was surprising to me. I didn't understand what anxiety was at that time. So I would tell him things like, oh, son, everything's going to be okay. You just got to look at the bright side. You know, when life gives you lemons, make lemonade, that kind of stuff. And I tried to be really positive with him, but he was struggling from anxiety and depression. He started to withdraw from friends. He stopped liking things that he liked, like basketball. And when I started noticing symptoms, I took my son to meet with a therapist and they referred him to a psychiatrist and the psychiatrist suggested putting him on medication. And if he was really feeling this way and there was a substance that could help him, I was okay with it. I was a young single mom trying my best to take care of my son. After a couple months, his grades were back up to A's and B's, and we were so proud of him. He was proud of himself. I remember his first report card back with all his grades improved. We shared that with his therapist, and they took him off the medication. They said, you know, sometimes people only need medication for a little while. But then months later, it was like everything he had experienced prior came back times like three. Within a year or two, my son developed a full-blown addiction to Xanax. That's what he liked. He told me at one point that he thought it was safe, that he thought it was fine. He didn't understand why I was so concerned that he was taking this when he had taken it in the past and I had been so supportive of it. But now he was addicted and abusing it. And he turned to the streets to get it. Perla. I know this is hard, but can you please tell me about the 19th of September, 2020? Oh, it was the worst day ever. It was devastating. We drove to his grandmother's house, which is about 15 minutes away from here. And um, there's police cars and ambulance. They wouldn't let me into the room. They said it was a crime scene, but that he was in the room that his grandmother had for him at her house. 
And so I waited. And while I waited, I had a detective call me from the local police department. And he automatically began asking me questions. And he said he thinks that my son's death was caused by fentanyl. And Perla, I wonder if you think the the pandemic, you know, this huge event that was so disruptive and so isolating to everybody, played some part in the struggles that Daniel was going through. I think that, yeah, it definitely played a huge role. He relied on talking to his sponsor while he was in treatment. He didn't have that once he left. It was just him and grandma and mom and stepdad, you know. But besides that, he didn't have his friends. He used to love to play sports. People weren't out playing basketball anymore or you weren't seeing people skateboard or do much outdoors during this time. I think that was huge. I know that my son called several of his friends the day that he died. And uh, I'm sure he was probably looking for someone to hang out with. And what is it that you want people to know about this drug, fentanyl? What's the message that you hope people receive from what you've experienced and the work you've been doing since? What's really just kind of, wow, it opened my eyes is that most people who are taking fentanyl are taking it unknowingly. So people are purchasing what they think is a legitimate Xanax, Percocet, Adderall, cocaine, or even heroin, and thinking that it's just that when in fact it contaminated with fentanyl. And if they're not dying from that first-time use, they're probably going to become addicted to the fentanyl that was in there. Remember, two milligrams is a lethal dose of fentanyl. So it's like literally you're playing a game of Russian roulette, pill roulette, as they call it. Every time you take a pill, all it takes is one pill to kill someone. We're losing young people, naive people, smart people, all kinds of people, people who are taking something that they didn't ask for and they're dying from it. Coming up, what can be done to stop the spread of fentanyl in the US and other places, including the UK? Hello, Guardian columnist Jonathan Friedland here. I now have my own US politics podcast, which is, helpfully, called Politics Weekly America. So if you want to hear my interviews with politicians like Hillary Clinton or expert analysis from Guardian journalists and the latest news from Washington, D.C. and beyond, you should subscribe. To do that, just type Politics Weekly America into Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. We'll be there every Friday. Erin, what you've described to us sounds like a long-term problem that's going to require many years to properly resolve. But in the short term, is there anything that can be done to stop these fentanyl deaths? Well, I was mentioning before, there's this drug called naloxone that can reverse these overdoses. And that's one of the things that's happening here 
in San Francisco where they've had a terrible epidemic of overdoses. They're trying to distribute this drug naloxone so that you can either inject it into someone's arm or you can release some of it into their nasal passages and it reverses an overdose. They are trying to make sure that homeless people on the street have this handy. They say parents should have it even if they don't believe their kids are drug users. And also fentanyl test strips. So if you're using a drug, you might be able to test and see if it actually has fentanyl in it. They're also trying to open more treatment for people. It's been very hard to get into treatment during the pandemic. And what about on a longer term scale? How has the federal government responded? Are there any like big policy shifts that could be made to help this? Yes. President Biden was speaking about this in his State of the Union address on March 1st. And if you're suffering from addiction, you know, you should know you're not alone. I believe in recovery and I celebrate the 23 million, 23 million Americans in recovery. And they're trying to quickly come up with more money for medication to treat opioid use disorder. And they're really talking about shifting the emphasis in the way we've dealt with this more to helping people get off these drugs and overcome their addictions rather than trying to lock people up or have a war on drugs as we have for the last 50 years. Erin, we've been speaking to Perla Mendoza, a mother whose son Daniel was killed after taking a Xanax that she describes as being poisoned with fentanyl. And one thing that strikes me from Daniel's case and others is that these drugs are speaking to a kind of profound need among Americans for pain relief. And the fact that this problem got worse during the pandemic suggests they aren't just trying to relieve physical pain, that the people are hurting and isolated, looking for something, anything that can relieve that emotional pain. I think we're really just beginning to confront the problems that we're going to face from people being locked down and in isolation and without jobs and without school and really wounded by this pandemic. We haven't really even begun to address how to reach out and get maybe counseling for people. One group that is trying to address this pandemic in more holistic ways and address the issues of drug addiction that may have arisen from the pandemic is the indigenous American culture. They have a number of groups that are starting programs to use traditional indigenous practices and reconnect people with their culture and their beliefs in order to treat drug addiction. That's really interesting that these communities, on the one hand, we've seen be so vulnerable to this problem, are at the same time coming up with new ways to fight it. And as we try to figure out what the solutions for everybody might be, it seems like one of the most important things now is just to tell people, alert them to the scale of the problem, that the drugs you're taking on a Saturday night, they could be laced with fentanyl in poisonous doses and that even one pill could be enough to kill you. I think we're at a really fearful moment. I mean, it's kind of a horrifying moment where we didn't know about this and we're waking up to it. And I don't think that we have come up with the answers that we're going to need to come up with to address this problem, both in helping people feel more whole and connected to society 
and in just getting this stuff off the streets and not having it almost kind of randomly take people's lives who might just be experimenting with something or not know what they're getting into at all. I'm very concerned about it. And one of the drug researchers that I spoke with, Helena Hansen, said that she's already started to hear of cases of fentanyl popping up in Europe. This drug is so cheap to make and so easy to transport that I think it's going to be all over the world in no time. And the question is how to stop it. Erin, thanks so much. Thank you so much, Michael. I really appreciate your covering this. That was Erin McCormick. Thank you so much to her and to Perla Mendoza for sharing her story with us. Be sure to follow all of Erin's reporting on fentanyl and the opioid epidemic at theguardian.com. In a statement to The Guardian, Kelsey Donahue, a spokesperson for SNAP, said the company was, quote, determined to do our part to eradicate drug sales on Snapchat. Donahue listed several steps Snap has taken, including raising awareness of counterfeit pills directly in the app, using machine learning to proactively detect drug-related content, and working with law enforcement and other experts. And that is it for today. This episode was produced by Courtney Youssef and Lucy Hoff. Sound design was by Rudy Zagadlo. The executive producers are Mythley Rao and Phil Maynard. We'll be back tomorrow. This is The Guardian. Thank you.